get to that in a second. Nothing to see here. Uh, thanks for reading for us, Tegan. Uh, we are working through this letter of Romans. It's a letter written, written by the Apostle Paul to the ancient church in Rome. Uh, and I think I, um, I think I remember right back to the start of our series in Romans earlier in the year. I think Simon compared Romans to eating good steak. Uh, Romans isn't like fast food. It's, it's rich, it's complex, takes some time to chew over. And uh, there is a lot in that reading that we just had uh, read out, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's dense. Uh, but let's try and do the work and understand what uh, Paul has to say. I love that bit at the end. Um, these words were not just written for them, but they were written for us. And it's true of Romans too. It wasn't just written for the ancient Romans. It was written for us as well. And there is some amazing truth ahead of us today as we dig into this uh, great chapter. And I thought something that might help us understand what's going on in the chapter of Romans 4 uh, would be to get a bike. So here we go. I uh, brought my bike in today. Actually, no, it's not my bike. It's, um, it's my daughter Lucy's bike. Uh, this is what they call a balance bike. Uh, it doesn't have pedals. You sort of put your feet on the ground and you push off. But there we go. Um, Lucy's actually almost getting too big for this bike and she's almost ready for a, a pedal bike. But it is um, September and as all parents know, you don't buy things for your kids in September. You add them to the Christmas list. So uh, there you go. You can ask Lucy about a new bike on Christmas, Christmas morning here. Um, I wonder if you remember learning to ride a bike. I reckon most of us would have had the chance to ride a bike at some point in our lives. Can you remember learning to ride a bike? Uh, Or maybe you can remember teaching someone else to learn to ride a bike. Uh, I've been thinking a bit lately, if if we do get Lucy a new bike soon, um, how are we going to teach her to ride a pedal bike? how How do you teach someone to ride a bike? It's kind of not very obvious, isn't it? I mean, I know it's important to keep looking forward and keep pedaling and just keep moving, but the actual sort of balancing part, um, your brain just kind of needs to figure it out. And actually, that is how it works. Your brain does sort of automatically figure out the algorithm of balancing on a bike. You sort of start leaning one way and you automatically start turning that way to correct uh, your fall. And once your brain has got it, they're kind of there for good, isn't it? That's why they say it's like riding a bike. You can go decades and still jump back on and pick it up straight away. Although, I watched an interesting video on YouTube this week, uh, and it was about a guy who learned to ride a backwards bike. Now, a backwards bike is changed so that when you turn right, the bike goes left, and if you turn left, the bike goes right. It's backwards. Um, and to anyone who's ever ridden a bike before, riding a backwards bike is basically impossible because it takes what our mind has so deeply ingrained and it takes that algorithm and it flips it and our mind just can't do it. Uh, The guy in the video, he did eventually learn how to ride a backwards bike, but it took him about six months. Six months of rewiring his brain, training his brain to unlearn what he knew how to do and to instead ride in this new way. Uh, And two really interesting things he found. One was that once he'd kind of rewired his brain to ride this backwards bike, he actually then couldn't ride a normal bike anymore. He proved it is possible to forget how to ride a bike. Uh, And two, he tried getting uh, his young son to learn to ride this backwards bike. And interestingly, his young son picked it up in only a couple of weeks. Uh, Kids' brains are much more able to change and be rewired in different ways. I think the technical term is that kids have more neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity. Um, Now, the YouTube video has interesting implications for things like 
why it's so hard sometimes to change our habits and why our brains are wired certain ways. I think my brain seems to be wired every night at about nine o'clock to want some chocolate or a sweet treat, uh, and I can't really get my brain to change, so I might as well just embrace it. But, um, and there, there are, of course, much more serious things that we could think about with this idea as well. We could open up conversations about how the brain is wired to react certain ways to trauma or um, things like that. Uh, but in terms of the book of Romans... What I want to get from this is that Paul wants to help this church in Rome rewire their brains. And he wants to help us rewire our brains as well. As we saw last week, Paul is writing to a church in Rome that is divided. There's, uh, is divided. There's Jews, Gentiles, Jews who think they're more worthy before God than the Gentiles because of their heritage and their laws, and Gentiles who think they're better than the Jews because they've got more freedom and they live uh, more interesting lives. And Paul wants to share with this church the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And the church has heard the gospel before, but Paul wants to share the gospel so that it can penetrate inside the minds of this church. He wants the gospel to rewire how this church thinks. This church still seems to think that they can be worthy before God because of what they do. And I reckon we're not, we're not exactly the same as this ancient Roman church, but we can think in similar ways. So much of our life, we're told that if we do good, we get good results. You put the effort in and you get the reward. And so the gospel, which says that God justifies the ungodly, is kind of like learning how to ride a backwards bike. It flips our natural way of thinking on its head. And so can I say, we want to hear what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 4, because if we let the message of the gospel shape us and rewire our minds well the way of the gospel is so much more freeing so much more life-giving than perhaps the default way we might think Uh, so Paul as he tries to rewire the brains of this church he really makes three points Uh, so we're going to get into the chapter now and we'll notice these three things Paul argues that righteousness is a gift he argues that righteousness is open to all and his third argument is that faith is the key uh, these are the three parts to Paul's argument. So we'll notice these three things. Uh, we're going to come at the, back at the end as well to ask that so what question. Uh, but let's notice Paul's three arguments. Uh, so first, he wants to rewire this church's... Uh, the first way he wants to rewire this church's thinking is by showing them that righteousness, righteousness, our standing before God, righteousness comes to us as a gift. It does not come by what we do. It comes to us us as a gift. Now, if you've got Romans chapter 4 in front of you in your Bible or on your device, that's really useful. Um, Notice how in the first eight verses of the chapter, Paul brings up two Jewish heroes, uh, Abraham and King David, two Jewish heroes. Remember, Paul is particularly trying to show the Jews in this church that they need to rewire their thinking. And so it makes sense that he chooses two of their favorite historical figures to try and make his point. Uh, For the last few weeks on Monday nights, I've been running a training course with uni students, uh, working through some of this book by Rebecca McLaughlin. It's called Confronting Christianity. It asks some of those really hard questions about our faith. Does the Bible condone violence? How could a loving God allow suffering? Um, And I think the book does a great job of asking those tough questions and wrestling with them. Uh, And the other week, we did a question about whether Christianity is anti-science, whether Christianity and science are enemies. And one of the things the book uh, does that's really helpful is it goes back and it points out that many of the great scientists of the past were Christians. Actually, it brings up scientists of the present as well, but um, many of those great scientists, Newton, Faraday, Kelvin, these guys were 
were Christians. And because they believed God made the world, they thought it made sense to then study the laws that God gave his world. And I thought that was quite a compelling argument to help me sort of rewire my thinking. No, there's, there's not been this, this animosity between Christianity and science. They were never really opposed. Many of the great scientists were Christian all along. Uh, well, with Paul here in Romans, he's trying to show that, no, that the way to be worthy before God isn't by doing things. And actually, as he goes back to these two great Jewish heroes, he shows that actually that's never what they thought either. Uh, so notice, he goes to, he goes to Abraham. Uh, Paul says, no, Abraham wasn't justified by works. He didn't have anything to boast about. And he, he uses this quote from Genesis 15, God credited Abraham with righteousness. And he says, this isn't a word that you would use to talk about sort of a worker. If you, if you work hard during the week, you're obligated to receive your salary. Uh, but what God gave to Abraham was something that uh, wasn't something that he earned. It wasn't something that he deserved or he was obligated to give. It was a gift. It was something given. It was credited. Righteousness, our standing before God, it's not given as an obligation. We don't earn it. It's given as a gift. We can so easily think that God loves us more, that we're more worthy when we've done well, that we earn our place before God even a little bit. And that kind of goes along with how our brains think, what we've been taught, uh, taught about life. But see how Paul flips it on its head, turns the bike steering the other way around. Uh, verse 5, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly. It's all backwards, isn't it? Their faith is credited as righteousness. And next, Paul talks about King David. He uses another quote, uh, this time from Psalm 32, and the quote uses the same sort of language. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Uh, count there is the same root word as credited from the Abraham, Abraham quote. For the one who trusts God, their sins will never be counted against them. It's that gift language again. God, God chooses by grace. He, he chooses never to count our sin if we trust in Him and in Jesus. It's a gift. And by the way, that isn't past tense, it's future tense, isn't it? God will never count sin against those who have faith in Him. This is the gospel rewiring how we think. I don't earn my place with God. He chooses not to count my sin. He's never going to count my sin. He gives me righteousness as a gift, as I trust in His promises. Uh, well, then in verse 9 of the chapter, Paul moves on to the second part of his argument. Because righteousness is a gift, it's something that can be given to anyone. Verse 9, Paul puts it as a question. You see this in your Bibles. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Remember, the Jews in this Roman church think that their works and their heritage by being the circumcised people has earned their standing before God. And so they think they're more worthy than the Gentiles in the church. But Paul is now showing how that logic just doesn't stack up. And again, he goes to Abraham. He says, um, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to, credited to him as righteousness. Uh, verse 10, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Now, there are lots of things in life where order doesn't matter very much. Uh, this time of year, it's, um, it's spring, it's sunny. Um, I've been getting on to lawn maintenance, uh, trying to make my lawn nice and healthy for warmer months. I know it's kind of a classic dad thing. 
Um, we were in Bunnings yesterday and I was kind of walking down those lawn aisles and there's all sorts of different things you can get for your lawn. There's stuff to deal with your weeds, there's stuff for making your soil better, there's stuff for making your soil wetter. It's like, have you ever heard of that, like soil wetter? I thought that was just water, but um, there's different sorts of fertilizers. And I, I read the blurbs of all these things and they all convince me, so I just end up buying um, probably more than I need to. Um, and as far as I know, it doesn't really matter the order in which these things go on your lawn. You pump some fertilizer on it, you pump some weed and feed on it the next week, um, whatever. Maybe, maybe the order does matter, but as far as I know, you just put it all on there and hopefully it all works out for the best. But there are, there are things. There are things when the order really, really does matter. So um, when you're trying to plant a new lawn, you might start by spraying a poison over your lawn to try and sort of kill off the old one. Uh, in that case, it's important to go poison first and then new lawn, Right? If you go new lawn and then poison, it's not going to go so well for you. Uh, Well, here with Abraham, Paul is saying that the order matters. Abraham didn't get circumcised and then receive God's righteousness as some kind of reward for being circumcised, or you have to get circumcised before the gift can be given. No, the righteousness came before circumcision. Now, you might be thinking, why should we care about the exact timing of when some old guy got circumcised? Um, That's fair enough. I mean, it's probably not the kind of thing you bring up at dinner, is it? Um, But for the Jews in this ancient Roman church and for the way they thought, and actually the order is quite important. And believe it or not, it's actually important for us as well. Think about what exactly Paul's saying. He almost draws out a family tree of Abraham. And I sometimes... Uh, I sometimes wish the Bible actually had kind of diagrams or things like this. I sometimes think it would make uh, the point get across more clearly. So I had a go myself of trying to sort of visualize with a family tree of what I think Paul's trying to do. Um, He starts with Abraham. And Paul's Paul's shown us before that uh, circumcision came before, uh, uh, before circumcision came God's promise of righteousness. So there's kind of the faith promise and then later on circumcision. Uh, Now, after Abraham got circumcised, and of course his descendants were circumcised too, from Abraham came this whole kind of family, this whole group of descendants who were circumcised, including, um, you can see there, the nation of Israel. Now, the problem is the Jews in the time of the Romans were thinking that it's, it's only this special circumcised line, these particular descendants who could receive God's righteousness. Um, Or maybe actually, Paul talks about the law in verses 13 to 15, maybe actually because eventually through the Israelite people, through Moses actually in the book of Exodus, actually it's the part of Exodus that we're going to get to look at next year, um, eventually through the nation of Israel comes the law, the the Ten Commandments and, and the rest of the law that follows. Maybe some of these Jews think that it's those who have the law who can receive this, this grace and this, this righteousness. Um, But Paul is saying, no, 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 righteousness goes back further than the law. Actually, no, righteousness goes back even further than circumcision. It goes all the way back to faith. And so for those who have faith, including Gentiles like most of us, if if we have the faith of Abraham, (coughs) it's like we're included in Abraham's family tree. We're We're included in this legacy of righteousness if we have faith as well. Verse 16, Paul says, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. You see how Paul is rewiring the brains of the Jews and the Gentiles in his church. It's not just those Jews who have the law and are circumcised and therefore are righteous. No, righteousness is a gift. It's a gift that goes right back to the start, back to faith. Those who have faith in Jesus 
are now included in God's people, included in Abraham's family, even if we're not biologically descended from him. Abraham is the father of all people who have faith in God and now in Jesus. It's faith that is the key. Which brings us to Paul's third point. We've spent a fair bit of time thinking about Abraham today. Some of us will be more or less familiar with the story of Abraham, but um, one thing you might remember uh, that's big in Abraham's story is that early on God promises Abraham children. He promises that he'll have descendants. And as it turns out, Abraham waits a long time and no children come along. It's a sad story of long-term infertility. Sadly, the sort of thing many couples still go through today. Um, And Abraham and his wife Sarah get to the point where they're, they're old and they're beyond childbearing age. And Paul points out the whole way along, though, that Abraham continued to trust, despite the circumstances, he continued to trust in God's promise. He trusted that God was able to do what he'd promised, even when it seemed like there was no hope. He still had faith. And it's this faith that is the key to receiving righteousness in the gospel. Uh, now, to point out briefly a couple of things that faith is not. Faith is not never having any doubts or never being unsure at all. Abraham in his life had all sorts of doubts and was often unsure about God's promises, even to the point of, you might remember, sleeping with his servant Hagar to try and have a child another way because he was unconvinced uh, that it was going to happen. The Christian life is often a life of doubts and questions and being unsure. Faith is, faith is choosing to stick with God even through those times, working with Him, uh, walking with Him. Abraham never abandoned God. I, I, I take it that's what, means, what Paul means when he says that Abraham never wavered um, because you could argue that Abraham actually seemed to waver a whole, a whole lot but um, he stuck with God through it all. He kept trusting. Uh, the other thing that faith is not uh, is it's not trusting in whatever we feel like trusting in. Uh, it's not sort of a vague sort of hope that, you know, I hope that uh, maybe I have faith that my team might win the grand final this year. Um, that let me down this year as it normally does. Uh, we, we don't talk about having faith that God will do for us kind of whatever we kind of feel like he, we might want Him to do. Uh, we're talking about trusting that God will do what He's promised to do. We're trusting that God will do what He's promised to, to do. So with Abraham, God had promised a child. And so Abraham had faith in that promise. With us, God hasn't particularly promised um, biological families or children, but what He has promised uh, is what He promises in the Gospel. And just look at the summary that Paul gives us of that promise at the end of chapter 4, particularly in verse 25. I'll I'll put it on the screen for us, actually, from from verse 23. It says uh, here, The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is what God has promised us in the gospel, that that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, that his death was for our sins. We remember this in communion today, that the wrath, the just anger that God rightfully has about our sinfulness, that punishment that we rightly deserve for our sins, all of that was put onto Jesus at the cross. And so his death dealt with our sins. There is no punishment left left to pay. We have peace with God, as we're going to see in Romans 5 next week. But interestingly here, there's a kind of another part to the gospel promise that Paul speaks about here. It might seem a little bit odd, but actually it kind of almost seems here like Paul is saying that we actually need something a little bit more than just having our sins dealt with. Um, the Bible will talk in lots of places about forgiveness and our sins being forgiven. 
Um, but interesting, interestingly, you might notice in Romans, Paul almost never talks about forgiveness. Um, instead, he talks about uh, this other word that's a bit trickier, justification. Justification. Um, last week, we talked about justification a bit and how it's a little bit like how we try and justify ourselves with a CV or a resume. Um, and I, I, we kind of said that in Jesus, it's sort of like we have Jesus' perfect CV or resume to justify ourselves rather than, um, rather than our own. Um, Tim, Keller, Tim Keller wrote a lot about forgiveness and he used to say, which I think is right, that justification includes forgiveness, but justification is also a bit more than forgiveness. Um, he said in one sermon that forgiveness is a bit like being let out of jail. Sin is dealt with. There's no more punishment to be paid. You're free to go. But if forgiveness is being let out of jail, then justification is being let out of jail and then being made president, or we might say prime minister. And I think we need to just be very careful here with the exact mechanics. It does get um, funny and you can kind of, you can overanalyze it. But I think this is right. In the gospel, we're forgiven. At the cross, our sins are dealt with. But then we also get to, we also get a bit more than that. We get to join with Jesus in his body, in his church. We get to be in Christ. And as Jesus rose to sit on his throne, it's kind of like we're right there with him. It's kind of like we're sitting on the throne. It's kind of like we're being made president. We're not just forgiven, let out of jail, kind of, go free, but you don't have really anything left in this life. You're not just kind of let out and given a blank slate and then you can go muck it, muck it up again. Um, sometimes I actually think we do think like that. We think kind of, okay, I'm forgiven. I'm good with God. I don't have anything bad against my name now. I can go and live well, well for a while. And then a little bit later we fail and then, oh no, God's unhappy with me again. And then we come back and we ask for forgiveness and it just happens again and again and again. I, I fail, ask for forgiveness. I'm good with God. I fail again. And we just kind of have this cycle that goes on and on and on in our minds. But the gospel says, if we're in Jesus, then in Jesus and in his resurrection, we're not just forgiven, but we're justified, we're righteous, we're worthy, we're God's precious children. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a good thing to repent and confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. That's a very good thing. But there's no cycle of us being good with God and then bad with God and good with God and then bad with God. We're justified. We're not just let off of our punishment, but in Christ we're righteous before God. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Or in that quote from Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. And where we talk about faith, well, this is what we can have faith in. God's promises in the gospel. And as we have faith and as we rewire our brains and push aside that idea that we have to earn everything and that God won't love us if we don't live up to his standards, uh, we instead can train our brains to learn, even though it feels a bit like riding that backwards bicycle, that it's faith that counts, that we can trust. We can trust that in Jesus we are forgiven, we are loved, we are included. In faith, we don't get what we deserve. We don't get what we earn. We're given the gift of righteousness in him. I hope you can see that this is refreshing, isn't it? And energizing and freeing. This is the good news of the gospel. And really, we could just leave it there and say, praise God. But um, let's spend just a few more minutes asking the so what question. Righteousness is a gift. Righteousness is open to all. Faith is the key. Uh, but, but so what? So what? There are, I think, lots of implications of what we've 
heard today, but if I just pick two, I think there's a strong missional implication of what we've heard today, and I think there's a strong membership implication of what we've heard today, if that makes sense, kind of mission, going to others with the gospel, and membership, sort of how does the gospel affect um, our life together. I'm still thinking about mission. We've heard today that the Jews in this church, they needed to rewire their brains. Many of them thought that the only way to be righteous was by being one of the circumcised people or by being Jewish or or by by their heritage. And Paul has said, no, 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 no. It's faith that is the key. And that means that anyone, circumcised or uncircumcised, Jewish or non-Jewish, anyone can belong to God's family of faith. Now, I don't think here at Trinity Church Brighton we're making the same mistake as this Roman church, thinking that you have to be Jewish to be a Christian. I'm sure we don't think that. But I do think it's possible we can make a similar sort of mistake, where perhaps we still think the gospel is for some people but not others. Uh, Perhaps I think the gospel is good news for my uh, friend who's been asking questions about the Bible, but um, maybe I don't really think it's good news for my friend uh, from work, because he doesn't really seem like the type. Or what about my uncle? You know, he's happy. He wouldn't want to change his life because of Jesus, would he? Uh, Or or that gay couple that lives down the street. I can't really think that they'd want to hear about it at all, would they? Now, there's nothing wrong with having particular people we might be praying for and particularly wanting to share the gospel with. That's really good. But um, perhaps what we need to be careful of is those perhaps unconscious biases where our brains are wired a certain way, like the Jews in this Roman church. We might think that there's maybe a certain sort of person who the gospel is good news for, a certain sort of person who might be able to be righteous before God. But if, if what we've read today is true, then God's righteousness, which comes by faith, is open to all. And so perhaps we can at least be ready for opportunities to share about Jesus, because perhaps those opportunities might come from unexpected places, uh, from unexpected people. And as we've seen today, God has a history of bringing unexpected people into the family of faith. And then secondly, um, what does what we've looked at today have to say in terms of membership, our belonging uh, to God's people? Well, as we saw last week, we do have a great unity together as the people of faith, our, our heritage or what sort of person we are, or our Christian upbringing or our not-Christian upbringing. All of those differences can be set aside when we remember that we're united as sinners, justified by the gift of grace. Um, but the other thing I'd say about our belonging to church, I, I think it's true that Uh, If we've said our brains are wired to think a certain way, kind of once we've learned to ride a bike one way, it's very hard to rewire our thinking and flip things on our head. And I think we need to acknowledge that lots of this life teaches us to live a non-gospel-shaped life. When you go to school, if you do well, you get good marks. If you work well at your job, you get a raise. Or maybe you go unappreciated. But this is how lots of life works. And when we bring that kind of put in the effort, get the reward, thinking to God, we either think that we're just not good enough, we're not worthy, we don't deserve justification and so we don't have it. Or maybe we think that we are good enough and that actually we're on our way to earning it on our own. And neither of those things is true. And this is why it's so important to be in church and be together because in church we can remind each other and point each other to what is true. We can point each other again and again and again to the gospel. Because in the gospel, we see our sin. We see that we could never be righteous based on what we do. We see that very clearly. But we also see that in Jesus, our sins will never be counted against us. And can I say, if we're only in church sort of every now and again, well, it shouldn't be too surprising if our minds keep drifting back into that 
default way of thinking that we can maybe we can earn his grace or maybe we don't have his grace because lots of other things in life will be pushing us back into that merit kind of thinking Um, so we need to as we join together we need to we need to be together and be reminding each other of this gospel way we need to be here regularly so that we can be fed by this truth of the gospel and pointed again and again to his grace Um, there are lots of great reasons to be at church it's great to be at church for the sake of others um, but we also come for ourselves yeah because we need to be fed Um, We need to keep being pointed to the grace of Jesus, to this gift of the gospel. And we need to be training our brains and and shaping our thought patterns, rewiring our brains uh, to be remembering that in faith uh, we are justified before God. We need to be encouraged in faith. We need to be encouraged to keep trusting in God's great promises. Keep trusting that in Jesus we are forgiven. We are accepted. We are justified. And it's not our doing, it's a gift. It's not just for some people, it's for anyone with faith. And it's not about merit, it's about trust. So let me pray for us. God, we come before you today amazed by your grace. Uh, Thank you, Father, that you justify the ungodly. Thank you for sending Jesus. Help us today to Feel your gospel, to let the gospel shape our hearts and minds and our actions. Help us point each other to the gospel. Help us to go today and remember that bread and that juice and what it represents. Help us to trust in your grace, to trust that in Jesus we are justified. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray today. Amen.